Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All the people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have the young. This is the word of the God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all may take a seat. I have a question for y'all this morning, and I have a theory that your answer will be different than the 915's answer, but we'll see. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where it's like 930 at night, and you realize, huh, I haven't eaten today? Anyone? Okay, a few more, a few more. I'm realizing that I am unique, apparently. I have some days, I don't eat breakfast, I work through lunch, I get home and I make a dinner that is suitable for children, not adults. And then I'm getting ready for bed and I realize, ah, I'm really hungry, probably because I've eaten nothing all day long. And then I have this moment of indecision. I have a Grubhub gift card from a previous season of life that I've allocated for such a time as this. And I wonder, is now the moment when I order a chimichanga? <laughs> Which is what I want to do, but I know I ought not eat that at 10 p.m. at night. And so I wrestle with this. Usually the chimichanga wins. And once I've committed to eating, at that point, all bets are off. And even though I've placed the order for this chimichanga, even though its arrival is inevitable, I start raiding my pantry for stuff. I'm, I'm up. I'm eating. I'm going to go ahead and get full. And it makes no sense because I've just ordered food. Its arrival is inevitable. And here I am filling myself with garbage from my pantry. And that chimichanga narrative, as deep and profound as it is, is encapsulating what we go through in Advent. In Advent, we are in a season of longing and waiting for something that has a sure and certain arrival. It is imminent. We are waiting on Jesus to return to us, which will come to pass. And yet, in the interim, we find ourselves filling ourselves with things that will not satisfy us, things that we ought not look towards. Advent is this season of longing and waiting, but we don't enjoy longing and waiting. We would rather snack. We'd rather 
eat right now. And the way the New Testament conceptualizes this for us is it describes us as elect exiles, in the words of Peter. That we are a group of people whom God has set apart for himself, and yet we are without a home. We are waiting on the Lord's return to make all things new so that we will forever dwell with him. And it's that exilic status that we are a people without a home that causes this hunger in us. We want something more than what we have. And the text that we're looking at today in Isaiah 40 is a text addressed to a people on the eve of exile. These are God's words through the prophet to a people who are about to depart to be under the oppression of an empire. And I want us to look at what does God say to these people on the eve of their deportation? How will they weather what is coming for them? How will they be exiles? So when we're thinking here in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is a huge book. In an earlier version of this sermon, I wrote a six-page introduction to where we are in Isaiah. I will not subject you to that this morning. You're welcome for that as well. It's a huge book, and it's kind of like, how do you begin 40 chapters into this thing? And I think to put it really bluntly, almost crassly, we can say that Isaiah is a book about a people who don't know where to put their faith. So what's happening historically in Isaiah is we have two kingdoms. We have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Isaiah is a prophet who's been raised up to minister to the king Hezekiah in Judah to the south. And during his reign, they are watching in real time the kingdom of Israel in the north be besieged and then conquered by the nation of Assyria. They watch the northern kingdom fall, they watch it get crushed, and they are waiting, wondering, when does this happen to us? Because their military is far stronger than ours. And the choice that is before Hezekiah, the choice that's before the people of Judah, is this perpetual decision of, will I entrust myself to the care and provision of God, who will deliver me from these people, or will I try to make alliances with the nations around me? Will I try to cozy myself up to Egypt? Will I try to make good with Babylon? And this setting, I think it's really easy for us to distance ourselves from this way of thinking. It feels primitive. Because I don't know for everyone in the room, but I imagine for most of us, we've never had an army encamped against us. Which I, I can say kind of lightheartedly, but also truly, there are Christians around the world today who would be able to relate to this. We could think about people in Ukraine, people in Israel. Put yourself in their shoes. If you have enemies who are after you, are you thinking to yourself, my protection is in the Lord. He will deliver me. I need not worry. Or are you trying to arrange ways in which you feel safe and secure? Chances are you're seeking your safety and security, and I don't know that I would blame anyone for that. The place that Judah is in, in this passage, is one that I think we ought to relate to empathetically. Again, perhaps it's hard for us to enter into that place because we are not a people besieged. I think it's also difficult for us to enter into that place because we have the benefit of history. We can look back at what's gone on in this era and we can see, sure, Assyria may have been an enemy, but they came to an end. Just like Babylon after them came to an end. Just like Persia after them came to an end. Just like Greece, just like Rome, right? All of these empires rise and fall. And I think it distances us from the longing, the worry that the people of Judah are feeling 
But if you're feeling that way, I want to remind you of one thing, and that's MySpace. Does anybody remember MySpace? <laughs> yeah? MySpace is a big deal, right? Where is it? And then it was Facebook, and then it was Instagram, now it's TikTok. I fear what will come after TikTok. But these things, they rise and fall. These things that feel permanent in our lives, they're here and gone. And yet we find ourselves giving them our undivided attention. We find ourselves making our loyalties with those things. And so where we find ourselves in this narrative is King Hezekiah has a choice before him. As Assyria besieges Israel, will he make an alliance with the kingdoms around him in order to secure the, the safety of his people, or will he wait upon the Lord? And in chapter 39, Hezekiah does this seemingly strange thing. There's an ambassador from Babylon who visits him, and Hezekiah tours him through the armory and storehouses of his kingdom. It's a way in which he's asserting his power, his authority, his worldly riches. It's an episode that feels a lot like if you remember when King David took a census of the people of Israel, a way of counting up, look at how great I am, look at all of my possessions, look at this, and he shows it off to this emissary from Babylon saying to him, look at how great I am, look at how impressive I am. And in response to that, Isaiah in chapter 39, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. So Hezekiah, in his effort to show his power to Babylon, Isaiah turns around and says, all that you've shown him will be gone, forfeited, deported. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back after 39 chapters of calling the people to repentance. And what follows is really strange. I want you to read what goes on in verse 8 here. Hezekiah responds saying, The word of the Lord you've spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Which, this is one of those things where it's like, did I misread what just happened? We were just told that we're going to be exiles that we're going to be deported, that no treasure from the previous generations will remain here, and the king says, this is a good thing. Well, he's saying it's a good thing because what happens in the course of the narrative is Babylon, seeing the riches, the impressive armory of Israel, delays their attack for another 15 years. And it won't be until Hezekiah's son is on the throne that they are conquered and crushed. So what Hezekiah does is he buys his people a little time. And rather than waiting on the deliverance that the Lord might bring, he takes this action upon himself in order to say, I want peace and prosperity and safety for my people now. And I'm walking us through the background of Isaiah 38 and 39 here because I want us to see before we get to Isaiah chapter 40, we are like Hezekiah. We trade the inevitability of God's deliverance for the immediacy of protection and provision from worldly things, from things that will not last. When I was thinking about this sermon, the thing that came to my mind here was I knew a pastor who he had a parenting decision framework. It's a, a fancy way of describing. He had one question that helped him determine his parenting decisions. And that question was, will this help my daughter get into Yale? 
So will this extracurricular activity help her get into Yale? Will this sports team help her get into Yale? Will this tutor help her get into Yale? Which, to be clear, going to Yale, not a bad thing, not trying to be down on Yale for anybody in the room who may have gone. Having aspirations for something great, not a bad thing. But if it becomes your sole decision-making criteria, that I want peace and prosperity and security by seeing my child have something better than what I had, and that's all that is going on in your decision-making, chances are you may not be faithful to what the Lord has for you. My wife pulled me aside after the last sermon and reminded me part of that story is significant because his daughter was eight at the time. So that may color in some details there. We do the same thing. We look for places of peace and prosperity and security without asking the question of, is this what would be faithful to what God has asked me to do? Maybe you see this in your finances, that there are opportunities you have to give to other people and you don't take them because if your thinking is like mine, I often think to myself, if I don't give this, then I can invest this and think about how much more it will be someday. I don't take the opportunity before me because I want to enrich and secure myself. Or maybe you feel this desire for security, for peace, for prosperity in relationships. And you find yourself kind of triangulating in relationship, talking to people about other people in order that you can secure a certain narrative. Maybe you feel this dynamic in your family or with your friends where you want to be perceived in a certain way. Or you want to know that other people feel the same way about somebody else. We often find ourselves not waiting upon the Lord, not asking what does he want to do, what might he produce in us in our waiting. The question we need to ask ourselves is where do we trade faithfulness for immediacy? Where are we looking to Babylon instead? So I want to pause here in the narrative. What we've seen is 39 chapters of Isaiah where there's a repeated plea for repentance. King Hezekiah has blown it. His final straw broke the camel's back. What do we expect God to say next in the narrative? I come to this text thinking that it would be something like, you've blown it so many times, I hope you enjoy your time in exile. I'm done with you. Or maybe it's something like, go be in exile for 40 to 80 years, I need some space to cool off because you've made me mad. Go be in time out, we'll talk when you're done. Neither one of those things are how God responds. Isaiah chapter 40, it's beautiful language, but it's even more significant when we understand it in the context that it comes immediately after the pronouncement. This is a people going into exile, and what does God say? He says, comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. This is a shocking response from God. He's not holding them to task even as the people are on the edge of exile. He's saying, this is my people. And if there's ever a time in which it would make sense for God to look at the nation of Israel, his people, and to distance himself from them, surely it's on the edge of their exile. So instead of saying my people, saying that people, those people, but instead, in this moment, God identifies himself with the people of Judah who are about to be exiled. And this is significant for us, church, because we too are exiles. And what I want you to hear 
this morning is that in all the ways that you feel the pain of this exile, the longing and the waiting and the hope for something that will come, that is not a sign that you do not belong to God. You can be a people in exile and still belong to your father. And that is good news. Because we're tempted often, right, in the suffering of this life to think this must mean that God is not for me, that I don't belong to him. And that's not what God is saying. Apparently, exile and belonging to the household of God are not incompatible with each other. And look here at how God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He's saying, speak tenderly to them. Let them know that their debt is paid. This is encouraging language in the midst of a paralyzing fear that these people must feel on the eve of deportation. God is trying to let them know this is not the end of the story for you. And that's good news. I don't know where you are in the midst of your wandering and waiting in exile, but wherever you are, it's not the end of the story for you. There's more. And these words of comfort, they may be hard words to hear. Maybe a different way to say that, they may feel empty. How easy it is to say comfort when I'm in the middle of an uncomfortable situation. Might even feel a little tone deaf to you. And if it feels tone deaf to you, I imagine it felt tone deaf to Israel, right? Who's about to be exported into slavery, into another land. What is God doing here when he's saying comfort? I want us to recognize God's words, God's speech is not empty. It's not a cold, distant comfort from far away. God's words are powerful. In an ancient Near Eastern conception of of a king, when the king speaks, it happens. Nothing will stand in his way. If the king says something is true, it's true. And even further than that, in a biblical imagination of who God is in his speech, when God speaks, things come into being. Through his speech, he forms the things of this world. Through his breath, we are animated with life. God's words in the biblical imagination are understood to be powerful. They're understood to be effective. We see this typified in Jesus. The word made flesh. God acts through his words. And so when God is speaking to us as his people, I don't want us to feel like, yeah, that sounds nice, but it's not real. No, when God speaks, it becomes true. It becomes action. And I want you to hear how pervasive speech is as a theme in this text. Speech is all over these verses. Verse 1, it's Isaiah speaks to the people and he says, this is coming from your God. Verse 2, he says, proclaim to her. Verse 3, there's a voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Verse 5, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 6, a voice says, cry out. Verse 8, but the word of our God endures forever. Verse 9, lift up your voice with a shout. God is speaking to a people who are tempted to think, I have been abandoned. I'm heading into slavery, I'm heading into exile, and the volume of speech here is meant to communicate to us that is not the case. God is not done with us even when we find ourselves in exile. He's speaking to us and his word is effective, it's powerful. And when I think about the idea of words being powerful, words being implemented into action, the thing that comes to my mind is Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. To give you guys a little bit of a history refresher there, January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation stating that all slaves are free effective immediately. 
There's power in this decree that goes forth from the executive office. And yet, that will be enforced as Union troops press that message through the South. And it's now a federal holiday for a long time. Texas has celebrated this holiday of Juneteenth. Juneteenth is the celebration of when that news finally made its way to Texas over two years after the initial pronouncement. And what's going on here, as God through the prophet Isaiah says comfort to his people is like the Emancipation Proclamation. It is true here and now. Comfort my people, and yet we are waiting on it to be felt in full as it is enforced in real time. What this means for us is that we, who are also a people in bondage to sin, in bondage to Babylon's, will one day be set free. God's arrival is inevitable, so we can take comfort. But I still think these words can feel odd to us. If we look back at verse 2 again, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. It's presented to us in a tense as if it's already been done, which even just in the context of Isaiah, not yet looking at our own lives, feels strange because they have not yet completed their service. They have not yet gone into exile. So what is Isaiah putting forward here? I'm reminded of the novel Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Y'all remember reading that in high school or maybe skimming the Cliff's Notes in high school of Slaughterhouse-Five? Vonnegut is writing about a soldier in World War II named Billy. And as we follow Billy through his experience in World War II, this strange thing happens to Billy. He becomes unstuck in time. And the narrative starts moving throughout Billy's life as we follow him. Sometimes we're way back in the past. Sometimes we're way forward in the future. And what's going on with Billy is it's a way of Vonnegut processing through post-traumatic stress, his own experience of war. That when you have this traumatic event in your life, it can draw you back in time to a specific moment, and it can also point you forward towards the inevitability of your death. And that's really what drives the narrative. There's this phrase that permeates the book. It sounds innocuous. He writes over and over again, so it goes. Anytime death is invoked in the narrative, Vonnegut writes, so it goes. And what becomes apparent as the narrative progresses is the reason he writes, so it goes, every time death happens, is that Billy, who has become unstuck in time, constantly has his death looming on the horizon. He can see it at any given moment in time. He knows that is the conclusion that's coming for him and for everyone. So it goes. We all die. That's the message of Vonnegut, it's not the message of Isaiah. Why am I telling you that weird story? Isaiah is putting forward a similar conception that we have become a people unstuck in time. That what is true for our future can be true for us now. But the conclusion that Isaiah is reaching is very different than the one Vonnegut is reaching. It's not this nihilistic thing of death is always on the horizon, so it goes, we can do nothing else. His inevitability is that we will be redeemed. We will be saved. We will experience compassion. These things are certain to pass, and because they are certain to pass, we can treat ourselves as those who have come out of time, applying the future benefits of salvation to this present moment, even when we exist in the exile. And that's good news for us. We can rejoice in the present because of what will be true 
when Christ returns. Now, there's a significant way in which the pronouncement that God is making is different than the Emancipation Proclamation, than is different than a word going out to everyone. And the major difference is that in Abraham Lincoln's case, he issues a proclamation and he remains in the White House. But in the biblical imagination, that's not what's happening. God is issuing a proclamation and then he is coming to us to be the one to fulfill it. He is leaving his heavenly throne in order that he might join us here, that he might come to where we are. And this is what Isaiah is writing about in verses 3 through 5. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. The image that Isaiah has of our future is that God is making his way to us. As the exile is announced, as God says comfort, he's not saying this is a far-off comfort to be experienced sometime in the nebulous future. He's letting us know, I'm coming to you. I'm going to make sure all of these things happen for you. And the image that Isaiah uses here makes me laugh because I want you to imagine highway construction. Do we think of this as a speedy process? When have you ever heard of a road being early in its completion? (laughs) And I can't imagine that ancient construction technology was a lot more advanced than what we're working with now. The image is one of permanence and that nothing will stand in the way, but also it inherently lends itself to a period of waiting. A period of wondering, when will you arrive? When will you come? We are longing for you to be here. But the good news is that he will come. Again, because of the one who is issuing this decree, who's issuing this word, nothing will stand in his way. And this is the cry that the gospel writers take up when they're talking about Jesus, right? These words are attributed to John the Baptist, a voice of one in the wilderness, crying out, prepare a way for the Lord. Jesus begins this in the incarnation. But I think that phrase, prepare a way for the Lord, especially when we're thinking about John the Baptist, this guy who eats locusts and wears camel hair, crying out in the wilderness, command repent and believe. We think, or at least I think, that when I'm thinking about preparing for Jesus, I better start repenting. I better start getting myself ready. I better start living differently and doing things differently. And one of the things that Advent is inviting us into is reconsidering how we conceptualize repentance. Repentance, I often think of as doing or stopping. And I think there's an appropriate place for that. There are times where I need to do things. There are times where I need to stop doing things. But what's really interesting to me in the context of Isaiah 40 is that God is coming to us. We're not going to him. Prepare the way for the Lord is not, hey, everyone, you start building a highway out to God through your good deeds. You start earning your salvation by trying really, really hard. In fact, sometimes I think that we overestimate ourselves when we think about repentance. I think that I can do a lot to make sure I'm nearer to God, when in fact, I can't do much at all. What I need is God to come near me, not to think that I can go near to him. And this is the picture that Isaiah is painting, is that God will, in fact, draw near to us. He will dwell with us. 
And this is what we see in verse 10. Isaiah writes, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. What Isaiah is putting forward is a picture that we've already glimpsed in part in Jesus, this God who's drawing near to us. And he's depicted with two arms, or two descriptors of his arms. One is that he comes with might. He comes with power. And this is good news for us because there are kingdoms in this world, there are things in this world that need to be conquered, that need to be finished, that we need to be protected from. But what's really notable about the context of Isaiah 40 is, again, maybe this is just my own baggage I'm projecting onto the text, I would expect that mighty arm to be targeted at me if this is immediately following the pronouncement of exile. But that's not the posture that God adopts. His mighty arm is targeted towards protecting me. His other arm is described as compassionate, like somebody who wants to take up a small lamb and hold them near to his own heart. Our friend Bryson got us a copy of The Little Pilgrim's Progress. We've been reading it with our kids. And in this section of the book, there's this part of the journey where the little Christian is on his way to the celestial city. He makes a pit stop at the interpreter's house. And in the interpreter's house, he sees a painting depicting these verses from Isaiah. And in that painting, there is a lion in a crown, the son of the king, the prince, Jesus, who's holding a little lamb close to his chest. And in that picture, he's wading through a field of thorns and briars, his own feet tattered and bloody, so that he can protect this lamb. That is the image of our God coming to us, that we need to be carried, that we prepare ourselves for the way of the Lord by readying ourselves to be taken up, not by doing a bunch more, but instead by resting in the arms of a Savior who wants to carry us and who will inevitably arrive. And for any of you who have ever held a child in your arms, even thinking about Harrison being baptized today, you think about a precious little life like that that you want to hold close and protect. That is God's word to us on the eve of exile. How incredible is that? That God can say to us, comfort, comfort my people, even when we feel estranged from him, even when we feel far from him. Friends, what we're being invited into this Advent season isn't an Advent of doing. It's an Advent of resting, of waiting, of recognizing God will come to me. God, how can I cast myself upon your mercy waiting for what you will do when you return? Because I need you to return. We need to rest in the acknowledgement that he will be the one to bring change. And as we end our sermon today, specifically as we look towards the communion meal, I want to call us back to this idea that we are a people unstuck in time. Because communion is a meal that is uniquely meant to help us orient to multiple moments in time. Communion is a meal that points us backwards and looks back at the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a moment that roots us in our present to say Jesus here and now sustains us. And it's also a moment in which we look forward, 
We get a foretaste of what will be true when Jesus returns, that we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so as a people unstuck in time, a people to whom God is saying, comfort, comfort, not in some faraway way, but in a way where he's drawing near to us, I want to encourage us, and I'll pray over us in just a second, would this meal be a foretaste of what will be true? Would we be a people unstuck in time that we might apply the blessings of the future to the present as we wait on the return of our Lord? Will y'all pray with me? God, we thank you that you are a God who loves us and is kind to us. Lord, I see so much more of myself in the story of Hezekiah than I want to. That I find myself putting faith in things that I know cannot satisfy, but they're immediately available to me. And in that place, God, you don't cast me off forever. The end of my story is not exile. The end of our story is not exile. But Lord, you have declared you are making a way back to your people, a highway in the desert that all people one day will see you as God living and reigning with your people. And what we have seen begun in part in Jesus will be finished in full at his return. So God, I pray by your spirit, would you empower us to be a people who, as the prayer we prayed earlier said, inwardly digest the truth of your scriptures that your word would not feel far from us. God, but instead that we would be able to, as a people unstuck in time, experience the future comfort of what will be true when Jesus returns. God, even in our exile, and that's not to smooth over the hard things in life, but it's to ask God, would you allow us in faith and in fullness to experience the comfort of what will be true as we exist as a people waiting for you. Jesus, we pray this in your name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.